0: It sounds to me like these distortions are coping gone wrong. Yep. Right? Like, yeah. we, like at one point it was useful, a utility, a good utility to act or perform a certain way because of abuse, because of violence, because of whatever happened. And you made certain coping choices along the way, whether they were informed or not. Yeah. And eventually they've just gone wrong for you.
1: Yeah. And there isn't, you don't feel like there's a, an opportunity for recovery. So that's where you get stuck of going, this is just what happened, and this is always the way that it's going to be. And that isn't true in the slightest.
0: Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog.
1: This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area.
0: From ChangeLog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak.
1: And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese.
0: So as normal with any thinking and decision-making It occurred to me that there are some various ways that we all think that can be distorted. Cognitive distortions are common to talk about in psychology, but not so much in everyday life. And I imagine that of the ones we talk about today, there are several or all that we have done or do often. So I thought, hey, let's pull together a list of the most common and talk about a few of those from that list.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because cognitive distortions are something you don't necessarily have to have a a mental health diagnosis in order to struggle with these because we all do them at various times in various ways. And they're usually sort of born from a time in which we utilize them when they were more functional or adaptive for our survival or sort of getting through day to day.
0: That's why they're common. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll get into these deeper, I'm sure, but it sounds like they begin innocently as maybe even a defense mechanism or a reactionary situation, mm-hmm. a reactionary situation where you've got to deal with certain things and so you act a certain way or think a certain way. But over time, it gets more and more distorted. That's what they're called distortions.
1: Yeah. So research suggests that people develop cognitive distortions as a way of coping with adverse life events. So the more prolonged and severe those adverse events are, the more likely it is that one or more of these cognitive distortions will form. Hmm. We've talked about these in earlier episodes with sort of shoulding on yourself. Listen carefully to that, (laughs) right? And things like catastrophizing, right? Imagining the worst case scenario in all the things. So we're going to talk about a few different ones today. But basically, cognitive distortions are these tendencies or patterns in the way in which we think or believe. These are usually false or inaccurate. I would also say sort of like lacking and sort of they're not comprehensive. They don't sort of take in all details relevant to the situation, event, or interaction. And these all have the potential to cause psychological damage, right?
0: If done long term.
1: Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So that in mind, if we're looking at this being sort of a multi-factor sort of way in which these emerge, I can't help but bring up or think about aces. Have you ever heard of aces? Aces of spades, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Right? No, ACEs as an acronym. So ACEs are what we call adverse life experiences. So these are things that have happened to us within our first 18 years of life. They tend to be talked about or sort of referenced a lot in elementary school, early school education, so that teachers really can help kiddos who are struggling.
0: Hmm. So if you've had something happen to you, an educator might be aware of these different ACEs and understand how to help the child or work with the child, et cetera.
1: hmm Yeah. So these actually came out of a research study done by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente in California between 1995 and 1997. And so it was one of the largest investigations relative to childhood abuse and neglect and household challenges and the implications in later life relative to health and well-being. Yeah. So- These would include things like physical and emotional abuse, neglect, caregiver mental illness, and household violence.
0: Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking like, I'm going to tune out because they're talking about childhood stuff. Well, children become adults. Eventually, you were once a child and something happened to you and you're the way you are because of who you were and how you were brought up. And so these things are really relevant because eventually, of course, we also love children and we don't want them to be abused or neglected. But the point is, is like, don't tune out because we're talking about childhood stuff and you may not have a child in your house or something like that. It's because you were once a child too. And mapping back to our past makes sense of our future.
1: Exactly. Like, I think, why do we study history, Yeah. right? So that we can learn from it and we can do better. Look, we don't pick a lot of the things that we experience as a child, but it doesn't mean that then we didn't figure out ways to navigate that. And so- Awareness is the first step to change, right? Like if I don't know I'm chewing my food while I'm talking to someone, you know, and nobody tells me that, I'm going to continue to probably chew my food and let everybody see it.
0: And honestly, it's for one, that's to be very specific on that one. It's a general, I guess, social thing. It's being rude, but you can also choke. It's a choking hazard too. Like if you're talking and chewing, you can inhale food, (laughs) Yep, (laughs) it's got multiple facets of why it's not right.
1: Right. Well, at least this is the feedback that I've heard over and over again in my office, is that, like, if things weren't sort of bad enough, like, well, that was just sort of what I went through, like, no big deal. Well, it doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about these sort of adverse childhood experiences, you know, we're talking abuse as being emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, which I think are easier to identify, right? Generally speaking, you can make generalizations relative to what that would look like. Yeah. Yeah, and then like household challenges. So you might be like, well, Mariel, what's that? Well, violence in the home, you know, child abuse, and really even abuse isn't always that it was necessarily directly inflicted upon you but witnessing something violent or wherein there was a threat in some regard to your physical safety or sort of psychological safety that can be you know included in that yeah substance abuse right if somebody else in the home was using abusing substances and then I don't know how much people think about this, but, you know, growing up, if you're a child and, you know, one of your primary caregivers has a mental health illness, like depression, wherein they really struggle to do the sort of fundamental activities of daily living, that would have an influence or impact on someone else. And part of that really has to do with not having the buffer Right. If somebody's you know, not doing well themselves and trying to manage their own mental illness, they they just have less fundamentally to give and to assist with helping another little person with their own mind. And like we've talked about, one of the most significant things in development is relationship. Right. Yeah. Well,
0: it's like a recipe missing an ingredient. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're going to make something sweet Mm -hmm. minus anything sweet. In terms of an ingredient, it's not going to be very sweet.
1: Yeah. And so also included is like parental separation or divorce. And then even if there's a household member who's incarcerated. So all of those would be household challenges relative to having it one of the adverse childhood experiences. Right. Lastly, neglect. So emotional neglect, wherein, you know, people just weren't really there for you emotionally, like maybe your physical needs were met. Or that would be the other one, physical neglect. There wasn't anyone there to really run interference to assist you. You might not have had enough to eat or parents were under the influence of a substance, right? And as a byproduct, then some of your physical and emotional needs sort of went unmet.
0: So we're saying that these distortions, these common kind of distortions, come about because we're trying to cope with adverse life events. Generally, in this case, we're talking about it as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And so going back, mapping back to the childhood areas, we're seeing when maybe it might even make sense for someone who might align with or, you know, identify with some of these distortions we'll talk about today to map back like, Hey, what event happened in my life? that caused me to begin to cope in this way. So we're Mm -hmm. mapping back because these distortions occurred because there was some sort of adverse life event at some point.
1: Right, I like how some people have talked about it relative to sort of micro and macro factors. So micro factors being like biology, brain chemistry, right? And macro sort of like social interactions and culture and in the same way thoughts and beliefs. And so it's not a far reach to understand That as a kid, if I didn't have somebody talking back to me, you know, that helping me with developing my own way of refereeing myself, so to speak, I'm just going to fill in the blank and sort of fall back to default. Nobody's helping me buffer in any way. So whatever my brain sort of comes up with is what I do. Hmm.
0: Is that similar to kids not having guardrails in terms of discipline or things like that where you'll see... For example, like a r- organization like Young Life, for example, might reach out to kids who have, you know, not so much non-caring parents, but they're just different, I suppose. And they have less rigidity, less curfew, less strictness in their life. And these are, you know, teens, 14 through 17, somewhere in that age range, just using this as an example, where they have no guardrails. And so they're a lot different than their peers because they don't have anybody, putting a shape around them.
1: Yeah. One of the other things is just relative to habits, right? And if I've sort of practiced a way of relating to myself or this is what I learned, like this is the way to grandma's house we go, as a child, we don't tend to be as self-reflective, generally speaking.
0: No, I don't know. (laughs) We're in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. This current minute and the next 10 minutes is usually...
1: Right. And so what happens is sort of you develop a way of thinking and you went that way and then you repeat that and then you keep repeating that. I mean, I can't even tell you the number of people throughout my career who have been in my office and like, I don't know how I got here. I don't know why, like what things along the way. And part of it is, you know, somebody else pointing out to us like, hey, did you know you do this? Like, you know, Adam, you twiddle your thumbs when you know you get nervous or don't know what to say. Or Can't do
0: that? Yes, that's <laughs> good. I'm, just I'm twiddle my thumbs now.
1: <laughs> but you know, without somebody sort of being a mirror and a referee, we might not be aware of the thoughts that we think, and that's why we're having a conversation like this to recognize, like, hey, do I do this? I mean, I can't even tell you how many times while I was in graduate school and learning certain things and in therapy myself that I was like, oh, my gosh, I did it. Oh, I did that again. Oh, (laughs) right. Because it's like I'm putting a different lens on the way in which I think to be able to see sort of what I'm doing that's working well for me and what I'm thinking that isn't working well for me. Right.
0: And so from a layman's perspective, my thought is like, well, the first Line of changing decision-making, changing our thinking, you know, for our audience is awareness. So, hey, let's do a show about these distortions and at least bring up a few and link out to maybe a longer list, more distinguished list of common distortions and, you know, not so much self-prescribe an ailment to yourself, but at least be aware these things happen because a few for me, I was like, wow, I hadn't realized how often I do this way of thinking. And these distortions are like little mini frameworks of thinking, I think, you know, that they can yeah. get more and more distorted, of course, but it's like the awareness that they exist is step one for me, at least that's my thought of it from my perspective.
1: Well, one of the first recipes I sort of recommend for people when they're trying to change. And I think this is across a lot of different fields, be it like, I want to change how I manage my finances. I want to change how I eat. I want to change how I think, track it, <laughs> like, right? To recognize like, oh, I realized that I did this again or in this situation, this relationship, like these are the thoughts I tend to think. And then I have an opportunity to change them.
0: Well, there's a a well-known saying, and I think it may be generally in business or startups or just building a product, running a company, is you can't change what you don't measure, Right. So if you measure it, you're at least paying attention to it. You're aware of the ups and the downs. You're aware of the norms. You're aware of the, like the the norm line in comparison to the extreme lines, up and down. And you can begin over time to map what is a rational way to see this data point, whatever it might be. And to your point, yeah, if you want to change, track it, measure it. right? Examine it. Be the scientist, we, we suggest you be, of your own life, of your own thoughts, of the, your own thinking. And... Uh, Track it.
1: Right. Well, so one really important thing that I want to point out as as part of the framework when we throughout this conversation today was something that a psychological anthropologist by the name of Natalie Smolensky said. And she's she noted, cognitive distortions are caused by underlying emotional issues that have not been dealt with. Remember, emotion and cognition are not separate processes, but always co-occur. When you think about what came first, the chicken or the egg, the emotion or the thought.
0: Mm. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) That it could be the thought that triggered a feeling. And this is why, again, there's so much hope for change and thinking and feeling differently. Because I can recognize like, oh, here's a pattern when, you know, situation A occurs, I respond with B. Or, wow, I tend to feel like B and then I think A. (laughs)
0: So as we describe a few of these or link to the list, if you identify them, think in this way, well, what was the emotion or the cognition that sort of was a cause and effect of this distortion? Is that what you're saying?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: So kind of like trace back, like a map back to where it may have begun.
1: Yeah. Like, was there a situation that transpired? I, you know, I think a lot about for, because a lot of people tend to work you know, was there an interaction with your boss or a coworker that happened and that sort of created an emotion? And you're like, this stinks. Now I'm having trouble doing my job because I'm distracted by that previous exchange and how I feel about it. And I'm trying to now bounce back so I can do my job. And then goodness gracious, like what's wrong that I can't bounce back. And now I'm spending time trying to have a conversation with myself instead of doing work because I got hung up on that interaction. Yeah. So one of the ones I want to talk about today is emotional reasoning. And I think it's pretty self-descriptive, but it's any sort of observed evidence is disregarded or dismissed in favor of the assumed truth of your feelings. So I think, you know, because language matters, right? We can figure out nuances in how we say things like, you know, I feel sad, I am sad, like I don't want to be sad or I'm always sad. All of those nuances in words make a difference. And if you can imagine that how we think is sort of like the soil for what we're trying to grow in our lives, I would probably want to be very particular about the environment that my mind is growing in.
0: Yeah. Can you give an example of dismissing Or disregarding observed evidence because of an assumed truth or feelings?
1: Sure. An example might be like, I feel guilty because I didn't do what I thought you wanted relative to work. Like you told me that you wanted me to get this project back to you by Tuesday and I didn't. So I'm really struggling with feeling guilty but I had already told you on Tuesday, hey, I might not get it done. And you said Wednesday's fine. And I did submit it on Wednesday. So I'm still feeling guilty, even though you gave me other information that contradicted how I'm feeling. Gotcha. So I'm now continuing to be stuck in that cycle of guilt as opposed to you no, know, I got other feedback from someone else that said, like, no, you're you're okay.
0: Yeah. So that's a pretty common, I would say, occurrence. Yeah. Is there an extreme version of this one in particular? Or maybe project how it might get more extreme.
1: Well, I think like when the guilt turns into shame of like, I suck, right? Right. Like I messed up. I made a mistake. So now I can't seem to do a job.
0: Right. So if this keeps occurring, mm-hmm. eventually it will turn from guilt to shame and internal dialogue of, of being not enough. Yes. So, sure, we have a list of more to go through, but how would you counter, what, what are some good ways to counteract this one in particular?
1: Well, let me go back and give you some other examples so people have a little broader framework, too. What about, like, I feel overwhelmed and hopeless, therefore my problems must be impossible. So I'm using an emotion to make an inference. I feel inadequate, therefore I must be worthless. So in some ways it's an emotion and I'm making a generalization that Mm. isn't wholly accurate.
0: Yeah, like magnifying it even, you know? So Mm -hmm. this one small area I'm not good at,
1: so -hmm. therefore my whole
0: entire life is a disaster. My whole entire who I am is terrible at the core.
1: Right, or I could say like, gosh, I just feel so fat even though my doctor says, like, you're fine, your weight is within the normal range. Hmm. No matter the evidence, like, you're convinced you must be dumb or stupid, even though work reports, (laughs) grades, like, you got a degree or a few degrees, Mm -hmm. you can still feel. This would be, like, I'm using my emotions as the foundation for which I stand on.
0: Rather than factual evidence. That's why I feel like if you— you have a couple of these happening, you know. I would imagine that an authority figure with authoritative data might be a step towards overcoming your emotional reasoning.
1: Yeah. And so this is why one of the sort of mantras I always say is feelings aren't facts, they're just feedback.
0: You're right. So there's something going on here.
1: Right. Yeah. It may
0: not be as bad as I'm feeling like they are. Mm-hmm it's a fact that I am having this feeling, but it's just a feedback process to kind of like discover there's something going on here. I need to investigate further. And there you go.
1: Right. So, I mean, a lot of people struggle with anxiety and so anxiety is a natural, normal feeling, but it's your job to figure out what that experience of anxiety is telling you. Cause not everything is threatening, but it doesn't mean that there aren't threats. And so You know, recognizing, again, because you're like, well, Marielle, that's a feeling, not a thought. And I'm like, yes, but remember, I said they go together. Right. Right? So if I'm thinking a certain way or really getting stuck in the emotion and then go, oh, what do I do now? Like, I just am anxious. I can't do anything. What are some of the ways that I can help myself crawl out of that? Going back to your original question. Yeah. Look for other data points.
0: We've said that a lot though, right? I mean, we is that your response to almost everything, Mario?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Gather more look for other data points? I'm not poking fun at it. I just think it's it seems to be a common trend, find more data to support how you're feeling or not.
1: Well, in that you're doing an investigation, right? And if you just look at one piece of information, how does that tell like the before, the during and the after? It doesn't. So I want to look at what might have been going on before I started feeling this way. If I'm like, look, you know, every Friday at noon, I start to get really anxious or I start to, you know, feel really bad. I get nauseous. I'm like, what is going on? And then I realize I have to do a presentation every Friday at one.
0: That's a good reason to feel that way.
1: Uh Nerves.
0: Yeah, okay. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And so when I say get more data, it's like build the broader scene. Help yourself see other facets to what you're going through, what could be contributing to your feeling or the way in which you're thinking. Like, I feel guilty every time I don't meet my boss's, you know, expectations. Well, OK, has your boss made it exactly clear like this is when X, Y or Z needs to be submitted? Or we've talked about this, I think, in the work from home episode relative to not getting feedback when you're working from home because nobody can see you and going, how do I manage those thoughts like, oh, man, I must not be doing enough. I'm not producing. I don't think I'm very valuable to my workplace because I'm just not producing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, are you getting other data from your boss, from your coworkers? Or have you asked? <laughs> have you even said, hey, I kind of feel like I might be underperforming. Or how can you tell me more about what's going on? Because I think I would have, could have, should have done more. Which, again, that should've. would be another yeah. distortion. Yeah. It's to,
0: we'll link that episode in the show notes for those listening. So you don't have to go searching and finding. We'll, we'll link it up. But, you know, on that notice, it's like. If you're feeling a certain way like that, is how you're feeling represented by just your emotion and data? That's what it sounds like you're saying. Like, is my reasoning, in particular to this distortion, my emotional reasoning, supported by just my emotion? And so like, yeah. a, like a some sort of support system where it needs to be supported by both your emotions and data. Think of mm-hmm. it like a structure. And so m- missing one of those legs is just a stick – I don't know. Yeah. I'm just like one leg. I don't know how to describe it.
1: Well, like one stilt.
0: It's going to be distorted.
1: Right. This is why I used the the sort of analogy of like a wishbone.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to make a visual, but it was upside down <laughs> wishbone. I was like, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. But you it need both sense. sides because that's going to help it balance. And if I added even another third segment, so it's like a tripod.
0: Right. Which is like more data points. But the point was like, if you're just standing on emotions only, It's like a pogo stick. Right. You're going to be off balance, off kilter, (laughs) offset. So the way to counteract this one in Mm -hmm. particular, or maybe others as well, is to get more data. But don't just stand on the finale of your feelings being just based on feelings alone. That you need more support than more evidence. Yeah, That's reasoning, the sound.
1: Yeah. Well, if we think about it relative to balance, you know... Think about even the way in which our bodies move. And if I tilt too far to one side, I help counter that by extending another limb in the alternative direction, Mm -hmm. right? That there's an up and a down to help, you know, recalibrate and come back to more of a centered space.
0: So we're on number one. We've got four here. What's the, uh, how can we tackle the rest?
1: (laughs) So the next one I want to talk about is labeling or mislabeling, really. Might be the better word. You know, we've talked about name it to tame it and going, it's so important for us to be able to have an emotional vocabulary. But labeling things in this case for distortion is generalizing one or two qualities into a negative global judgment relative to oneself or others. So it's a projection of stores. So, I mean, even saying like, I'm I'm stupid. Mm. I made a mistake at work. I missed something that was important. I forgot a meeting. Ugh. So now I'm labeling myself as dumb. Or even I could be like, I'm so forgetful. No, you just forgot. That's a different way to label it. Like, no, you just forgot. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think of it like this might happen to everyone or have happened to someone at least once is feeling somebody's worthless. And so not that this is truth but maybe you're just not fully aware. I think of clerks, convenience store clerks, you know, grocery store clerks, people that are just part of your passerby scenarios in life, like just checking out human involved, not really checking in with them as a human. They're just sort of like just there, not that they're worthless, but you don't say hello to them. Maybe you don't say hi by the first name. I made it a point to like specifically look at their name tag and say, Hey Susie. Hey Ben, you know, whatever their person's name was. And connect and not emotionally tag them as worthless or meaningless in my day-to-day interactions. So I'm not saying those people are, I'm just saying that's a scenario too, where you'll just do life and you'll treat somebody like they're worthless or meaningless because somewhere in your brain, you've mentally applied a label that says meaningless, worthless, whatever.
1: Right. It's really this like extreme form of an overgeneralization it involves sort of describing an event with language that's highly colored and emotionally loaded.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: See how inescapable that is, right? If I'm like, oh, I did this one thing and now whoo, I just blew it up, that it's not gonna help me contend with that any better, nor is it gonna make me want to go back and try again. Yeah. And so you could even think about this if I'm to go back to our... Conversation relative to ACEs of we all label things as kids. And so I could have had an experience and go, oh gosh, no, I had this one really bad thing, or I was exposed to this violence, be it emotional or physical. And I use this word to call myself as based on how I got in trouble and then had really severe, negative, slash, abusive experiences as a kid. Now I have to try to relabel what that was and go, I want to put up some guardrails, so to speak, and say, that was what happened to you as a child. That is not who you are as an adult. And those aren't accurate words that really should be said to anyone. It sounds
0: to me like these distortions are coping gone wrong.
1: Yep. Right. Like, yeah. we,
0: like at, at one point it was useful, a utility, a good utility to act or perform a certain way because of abuse, because of violence, because of whatever happened. And you made certain coping choices along the way, whether they were informed or not. Yeah. And eventually they've just gone wrong for you.
1: Yeah. And there isn't, you don't feel like there's a an opportunity for recovery. So that's where you get stuck of going, This is just what happened, and this is always the way that it's going to be. And that isn't true in the slightest. The next one I want to talk about is blaming. And, I mean, this isn't that sort of profound, right? But that blaming people doesn't really work. If I hold other people responsible for my emotional pain or blame myself, right? It doesn't just have to be other people. It could be it's always only ever my fault, Right. So, an example would be you hand in your portion of the project late and say it was because of a mistake someone else made. You're blaming them and denying your share of the responsibility for your actions. Right. I'm sure that never happens in the workplace.
0: I've never done that. That's never been done against me. And never.
1: This is one of the challenges I would say with working on teams because it's a perpetual reallocation. And like, what was my part and what could I have done differently? Well, if they did turn it in late, then okay, Own it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Own it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, really, I'm not in charge of anybody else. And so even if or I like to use the word while, (laughs) while other people make other choices you didn't now, what are you going to choose?
0: Right, right, right. That's why I think, it is, especially in teams in particular, having a foundation of love and respect is so crucial because you wouldn't, I don't know if I couldn't wouldn't on you or not, if I could just shouldn't <laughs> on you, I don't know. But, you know, you may not make this choice if there's a foundation of love and respect. And I'm not saying I, I can't. So if this were a real example, we me examine further, that's where I would look. You know, whether the strength of love and respect and what I mean by that is not so much like literal love, affection love, but more like, do you have care and concern for your teammates? And if so, respect flows because of that. You respect your teammates, you respect and care for them. And so therefore you wouldn't label them as the the reason for your mistake. It's foundational in other ways. And that might be part of the examination and the, the data gathering portion of this.
1: Yeah, and so to that point, and this would fit for blaming as well as the labeling or mislabeling, is sort of the best friend test, right? Asking yourself, like, would I say these things to my best friend? Yeah. Or would I say what I'm saying to myself and the sort of internal criticism I'm giving to me? Would I ever say those things or expect those things of my best friend? yeah. Because usually there's a different filter, right? Like my friend comes to me and they're struggling like, man, I was trying so hard to do my best on this project and I just wanted it so good. And then my colleague submitted it late and then I felt more pressured. And like, I'm just so mad. And like, I'm just so dumb. I can't believe that I couldn't just put it together and get it out there.
0: Wow, you just combined both of these. All right. (laughs) I see how that, uh, well, we can see how they layer. I mean, you can actually have layered distortions combined.
1: Right. And so as a best friend, my best friend would be like, look, you're doing the best you can. And like, I think that's a sort of fundamental thing I want to give to everyone is going, everybody's doing the best they can with what they've got, even if it doesn't measure up to your expectations.
0: This is so pertinent. This wasn't part of the show and it's not in the notes, but I thought this the other day and I wrote it down. And I was thinking about blogging about this because this is just top of mind for me. It says, if you're trying, you're not failing. Failure is a stop motion event. When you're trying, you're still in motion.
1: I love it. Yes. Yes. I really want people to recognize the value of effort. You know, it's been in conversations with my husband and I lately relative to sort of legacy and things that his parents and their parents, you know, choices they made that were, you know, benefiting from, but they were like, you know, 50, 60 year pushes with effort repeated over time. And it's not like there wasn't hardships within those, but going, and I think too, the sense of resiliency, trying also embodies, like I practice the getting back up. And sometimes I get hit really hard and it might take me a longer while to get back up. But as long as I'm like, I'm going to put forth the effort to try, try again, try again. Yeah. And that's really, too, where I think people can have a lot of good feelings and going like, hey, I practiced showing up. I tried again, (laughs) even though, you know, sort of I was fearful or, you know, I had the message internally that was like, "I don't know that you can do it." Let's look at all the ways you failed in the past,
0: mm-hmm. right? I hate to think about Dory in this way, <laughs> but she's so right, right?
1: I know. Just
0: keep swimming. Just keep trying.
1: I say, "Do it like Dory."
0: Do it like Dory. You say that? <laughs> yeah, That's funny. That's funny.
1: <laughs> I do. And there's that. Oh gosh, what about Bob?
0: Oh gosh, yeah. Have we
1: mentioned that movie? <laughs>
0: That's my favorite movie ever. It might even be like Groundhog Day and What About Bob. But I think I would put What About Bob as my top all-time favorite movie ever.
1: Uh, right? Yeah.
0: Like legit. I own it for sure. Like on all the medias. Like VHS.
1: True Confessions by Adam.
0: <laughs> it's like the Beatles White Album. I, I buy it on all. I am just I don't buy that one. It's, it's an ongoing joke for many people who love the Beatles. But you've bought it on all the media types. Right. LPs, et cetera. You got them all. Yes. What about Bob?
1: And really, that's just it. Like, where does the blame get you? It doesn't move you in any direction. So you're not taking baby steps. You're not trying to keep swimming.
0: That's a what about Bob reference, by the way, if you're listening. Baby steps.
1: (laughs) Yes. Baby steps.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but I just had to point that out.
1: Yes. Over and over. And this too is really sort of out of the playbook of exposure therapy, right? Like if I expose myself to the thing that I'm fearful of, overwhelmed by, you know, I reduce my sense of threat and then I find out through direct experience, like I didn't die. Man. I
0: I made it. This is exactly how mountain biking works. I hate to keep bringing (laughs) it up every episode or occasionally, but it's the same thing. That's how progression works with mountain biking. There are certain terrain that you're just fearful of and you're like, Whoa, I can't do that this time. And you and you'll walk it. And that's cool. There's no shame in walking a feature.
1: Right. But you still did it. Right. You still walked over the terrain. Right. So all you did was lower the threshold.
0: Exactly. So you become more familiar with it. You start to mm-hmm. see things in 3D, which is taking in more data. Right. You've actually walked the steps. You can, they call it choose your line. So you choose which pathway through the feature you'll go. And then you'll take a, the next baby step might be. Well, I'll walk it a little faster next time or the next time I'll ride through half of it or some of it or at a slower speed or a faster speed or whatever it might be. Whatever it is, you're taking one more step towards conquering that feature. And it's the same thing.
1: Yeah, I love that. So I pitch it in my you know coaching background. We used to sort of do the underloading or overloading. So underloading, like, for a trick would mean, like, on a trampoline or with additional supports, with a spotter, you know, or a really wide piece of, you know, tape on the floor instead of an actual four-inch-wide piece of wood, right? Until you build that sense of confidence yeah. and going, I want people to understand the actual positive emotions that can come and the joy with the discovery. Like, I did it! I did it! Yes, like, I was worried, I doubted, and like, I did it. And that then begins pushing you in a different direction that also then builds more hope. So that's where all the good stuff is, right?
0: Just keep trying. Just keep swimming. Yeah. Do it like Dory.
1: So it's interesting to go from there to our last and final um, cognitive distortion, which is the fallacy of change. Oh boy. <laughs> right? So this is relative to believing that other people will change to suit us if we pressure or cajole them enough. If I expect somebody else, like if only you'll do this for me Adam, then I will be happy.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a lot of failed marriages are built upon that. <laughs> Relationships generally are built upon that like eventually this person will change. Eventually I will change them. Eventually Et cetera, et cetera. So I guess on the outset, my first thought would be to accept people as they are and to operate around who they are rather than attempting to try and change them. That my future version of happiness with them isn't based upon change. It's based upon adaptation.
1: Yeah. Well, I talk about it relative to like, well, that would be ideal. Awesome. Right.
0: (laughs) Sounds easy. Done. Check.
1: Right. But that isn't the way that it works. And so, again, ironically, I'm taking back responsibility and going, while this person isn't sort of meeting my expectations, delivering on what I'd like or what I believe them to be capable of, what am I going to do? If your choice is your superpower, right, how can I choose while other people do whatever they're doing?
0: Well, going back to three with blaming, like you are in charge of your choices.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: You have full control Mm -hmm. of your choices. Yeah. And so if that's the case, make your own choice. Don't let your choices be against or because of someone else blaming them or, you know, being in or in a relationship with someone of any type. Based upon something that isn't part of your choice.
1: Yeah, I think about this, a really good sort of picture is I grew up living in bigger cities, so I wasn't really exposed to like the two-lane road, like country road style. and. Oh, really?
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where I grew up, so we're the exact opposite.
1: So I was, goodness gracious, like probably late 20s before I had that. And the pressure when it's a two-lane road as based on the car behind you, who's like, come on, I mean, they're going to tail like big time until you speed up. I was like, I do not like this. This doesn't feel good. And, you know, vice versa. So if I do that to someone else, they like, move out of my way. Can't you see I'm in a hurry? I'm trying to push them into adherence and giving me what I want, right? But this little thing of just going, if I just pull over and let them pass, they can go on. And like, that was my choice. If like, if I don't want to be pressured like that, I'm going to pull over because obviously they are in that much of a hurry. So let it be. And then I can go on with my day without allowing my mood to be totally in reactive to. Yeah. Yeah. Because of it. Yeah.
0: Well, I think in scenarios like that or others similar to it, we don't always fully examine our options. Right. And Mm -hmm. so to someone the option to pull over and and maybe put your arm out the window and wave them by isn't an option considered, therefore not explored. So Mm -hmm. being able to slow your mind down enough to consider what rational options do I have in this scenario and then pick one and give it a try.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Because you could have just slowed down The person could have gotten irate and been one of those people behind you and it turned into a road rage situation. Yep. But instead in this hypothetical situation, potentially real at some point in your life, you pulled over or you slowed down at least and you put your arm out the window and said, go ahead, go by politely. Yep. And they went by and everyone was safe and happy.
1: Yeah. And so recognizing that we can actually change in response, it doesn't mean it's what I... I wanted, per se, but I could choose to just keep going and expect them to do it. And then when they don't, like, well, this guy, this girl, like, I can't believe blah, blah, blah. And I come into work and I'm steaming hot. It's like, yep. Welcome to humanity.
0: Mm, Yes.
1: Like, we all be people. We all be people. True that. (laughs) Right? How's that? We're educated.
0: Yes. Well, that's good. That's good. So- there's a lot more than these four, right? There's sure. a lot of distortions. And I'm not even sure if there's like a, a truly comprehensive, stamped by a doctor, approved list or whatever. I don't know how authoritative these distortions can be in a list. So you can help audience out there. But there's more than this. Mm-hmm. What do we want people to do because of these known distortions? Is a prescription to go and examine them and self-label and self-prescribe? What, what do we do?
1: Well – I'm so glad you asked. Well, we've talked about how important the awareness is, right? That sort of step one, if I'm not aware, I can't change what I don't know I do. So that and then the reframe relative to get other information, like what is the context of the thoughts I'm thinking? Do they tend to happen the same day, the same time, around the same person? Where do you notice sort of any other factors that would help you better understand your thought process at that time and then finally i think it's helpful for people to consider the way in which there is the benefit like because once upon a time right it did pay us in a way to use these but there might be a way that it's continuing to benefit you and so how did these thought patterns help you cope with something in your past And like, for example, did they give you a sense of charge? Like I had more control when I didn't feel like I had any control. And what does it cost me then? If I continue to think in this way, like, you know, it's challenging when dealing with our own mind, right? Because it's one abstract. I can't pull out my thoughts and like, in the sense, manipulate them with my hands in a tactile way. But recognizing that there are ways in which we've used these to sort of work for us, it's important to be able to recognize the way in which you actually forfeit something else by continuing to think in this way. And so when we recognize that we can direct our lives just in considering the way that we think, like I mentioned with the soil of going, what do you want to grow in your life? And that at different times, in different ways, that facilitated not necessarily the growth you wanted in that way, but that was more rooted in safety or survival and asking yourself, is there a way that maybe these thoughts or way of thinking aren't serving where I want to get to? They worked for me back then, but- They don't work for me in the same way, just like we outgrow clothes, right, for one reason or another, recognizing that the thoughts we think contribute to how we feel, and how we feel contributes to how we think. And therefore, when I can hold those in my mind as I do my life and my days, I can begin to use those. To inform other choices relative to work, relationships, and improving how I feel on a really a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis.
0: Yes, that is so true. The soil in your mind is your thoughts. How often do you think about what you think about and the decisions you make because of those thoughts? Carefully consider this soil and share with us your thoughts on this show at changelove.com brainscience slash 24. This is episode 24. And we have a big announcement. We're taking brain science to Heart of, Facts. Heart of Facts is a virtual conference coming up. It is an intimate discussion of mental health, community building, and other things software professionals need to talk about more. It's happening August 12th, 13th, and 15th online virtually. Learn more and register at heartoffacts.codesupply.co link will be in the show notes. By the way, subscribe to our blog. We have an upcoming free pass giveaway coming up, plus some details about the actual talk. So stay tuned for that. Huge thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and Rollbar. They get it. And also Brake Master Cylinder for those awesome beats. Thanks for listening to Brain Science this week. We'll see you next week.